I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Hello and welcome to Gardening with the RHS. I'm Verity Battle, a team leader here at RHS Garden Wizard. I'm currently standing in the sunshine, which is lovely because it's a bit chilly otherwise, and we're in the exotic garden, just enjoying the last of the lush foliage before it all gets frosted and damaged by the cold weather. And as I say, it is cold outside today, which is why on today's show, I'll be talking to RHS Principal Advisor, James Lawrence, about how to protect your plants during the chillier months. I'll be improving my curries and salads by chatting to fellow presenter Guy Barter about kale. And later on, we'll be learning about how to make slow gin. Working with the trials team, I'm always on the hunt for new plants to try out. So I'm really excited to be presenting this week's show and talking to some of the most experienced gardeners here at Wisley. In the trials garden, we've been planting the last few fritillaria bulbs and doing a little bit of tidying up herbaceous perennials, just where they're fully over, but we're leaving what we can over winter for the wildlife as well. Now is also a good time to edge lawns, especially if it's not frosty, as they should then stay looking good through winter. But first, a food of the moment. Kale has become increasingly popular in recent years. I love to eat it, using it both in a soup and a sausage bake, but I haven't got much experience growing it, which is why I wanted to talk to our chief horticulturalist and king of vegetables, Guy Barter. Hi Guy. Hello Verity. So, first of all, why do you love to grow winter kale? 
I much prefer Brussels sprouts, cabbages and cauliflowers. Oh. They're more of a challenge to grow, but after 25 years of overcropping my allotments, I'm going to have to switch to some kales, which are far more resistant to the root diseases and the virus diseases that afflict allotment crops. So I've ordered a couple of packets of seed for next year. I'm going to give it a go. I often grow the Tuscany kale, I have to say, but that's not quite frost hardy. It tends to get a bit scorched when the frosts really begin to bite in December. And that's certainly very delicious. Oh, that definitely sounds like one to look up. I'll definitely look into that. So you mentioned a little bit there about sort of best ones to grow. And, but do you have any other advice for planting sort of when we should sow it and best soil types? Well, kale is a fantastically flexible plant. It can be grown as microgreens at any time of year on the windowsill or a greenhouse or outdoors in the summer. And it can be grown as mini plants. It can be grown on any sort of raised bed or container. There's even ornamental kales that you can eat when you get fed up with looking at them. And of course, there's the main crop of kale that is available usually from about October through to March. But it's that New Year kale that's really valuable. And I have to say that kale makes one of the finest bubble and squeaks. It's got a really good, rich flavour. And the sharpness of the sulphur compounds that give kale and cabbages their flavour is really pronounced when it's made into bubble and squeak. And I have to say it's delicious, especially with some homemade pickle. Well, I know that's my job for tonight. Then go home and look up a recipe for bubble and squeak and give it a go. Um, any challenges with growing it? I know you mentioned a little bit about hardiness for, for some of them, but any other challenges? Well, not really. It's usually pretty reliable. I think that normally for a winter crop, you'd sow it in April or May and then you'd plant it out and it would then come ready by October. But you can also plant it at any time from March through to mid-August and you still get nice little plants that you can either harvest whole for the August sown ones or larger, take out the tips or the young shoots selectively for the others. Naturally, like all cabbages, it can be afflicted by cabbage root fly, but that is easily dealt with. Either grow those plants if they're small ones under insect-proof mesh or you buy little mats that you put around the base of each plant, which thwarts the cabbage root fly, because it likes to lay its eggs at the base of the plant and in the soil and tunnel round. But I'm sorry to say that the very worst pest is cabbage white fly. It's almost identical to greenhouse white fly, but it's a lot hardier. And this seems to favour kale. It affects all cabbage plants, but it affects kale most. And it doesn't really matter in the sense that you can wash it off the leaves and discard the leaves that have got young ones. And you know, the scales are so small, if you happen to eat them, it's just extra protein, you won't notice it. Um, but it is a confounded nuisance, especially in hot, dry summers. If it's, it's something you have to put up with because there's no insecticide sold to gardeners that'll have any effect. Right. So, do you have any favourite varieties? Well, that's a really interesting question because in the recent years, plant breeders have really gone to town on kales. And it's really driven by demand in the United States where kale is enormously popular as a superfood. Because um, the microgreens and the mini leaf kales, you need a lot of seeds. Um, hybrid seeds have not really taken off as yet for kales. So the open pollinated kales like uh, red boar, for example, and green curled are very, very cheap seeds indeed. And you can easily buy a packet of a thousand seeds for a pound or two. And that's enough for most people <laughs> for a very long time. Yes. Um, having said that, uh, kale has now become a really important commercial crop as well as a garden one. And there are a few F1 hybrid varieties that are on the market. 
I'm not sure that they're worth buying for the home gardener. The seed costs more, but home gardeners don't really want the uniformity that's bred into F1 hybrid kales. So I'm inclined to stick with the open pollinated ones. I like red boar, which I have grown quite a lot over the years. It's got a nice red colour, it's extremely hardy and it's very easy to fit in. Just buy some in the supermarket and check you like it before planting too much. Good advice. <laughs> now, there is one kale which I cannot recommend enough. It's a fantastic vegetable. It's one of the very few new vegetables that have come on the market in the last 20 years that are worth growing. And it's called kaylet. Okay. Now, the kaylet is a kind of kale that produces fluffy sprouts all up its stem, like a Brussels sprout, only fluffier in kalia. You usually buy it in a packet of mixed colours, the greens and reds on the foliage. It's extremely easy to grow. It's got all the advantages of kale and um, it's much hardier than Brussels sprouts. So when your Brussels sprouts are finished, you can still go on picking kalets. But they're so nice, it's worth picking them as soon as the, the little fluffy side sprouts are usable. And um, I usually give them a quick boil or a quick microwave and keep the crispness. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, they're very nice for mopping up gravy. So that's my top tip for Kaylets, mop up your gravy with them. And so I think you've probably touched on this, but just to clarify and recap for us, when do we pick it? You pick it whenever it's ready. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, that's a very facetious answer for which I apologise. <laughs> but um, it's as simple as that. Often RHS members get very upset if I say that because they think I'm taking the mickey, but I'm not. Literally, you can put the plants in. Let's say, for example, you sow in April. That's a good time to sow. You might sow, say, 50 plants. You might pick 40 of them as baby plants and the other remaining 10 you might plant out to make a, for later on. And then those ones, you can pick them as you want to. But usually there's so much nice food from the garden in summer that you want to get through that before you start in on your kale. But by October, when the runner beans are finished and the tomatoes have withered, that's when the kales really come into their own. And then, if it's a hard winter, you're really glad to have some kale or kalettes in the, the new year. And then, in around about February, they start to go to seed. Um, this isn't a bad thing. Uh, you can either leave them to flower, and cabbage family flowers are very good for pollinators, or you can pick them like purple sprouting broccoli and have a nice stir-fry with them. Oh, that sounds very good. And you may have, may have just heard a tractor go past in the background. We're, say, stood in front of the hilltop, and uh, there's a buzz of activity around us. So, just before I let you go, Guy, what else could we be doing in the allotment at this time of year? Well, it's always tidy up time at this time of year. And this year, it's absolutely wonderful because we've had two very wet autumns in the south at any rate. But this year, the ground is really dry. Nothing's covered in sogginess. A lot of the vegetation hasn't turned to mush. A really good clean up and it's going to be very good. Now the leaves are finished, I'm also going to start pruning. There's not a lot of pruning to do on my allotment. There's some red currants and gooseberries and black currants, but um, it shouldn't take too long. I tend to do the apple pruning in February. I prefer it then. But there's also a lot of trees in my back garden and some trees around the allotment site that we coppice. So I'm going to go around with my saw. I'm going to invest in a new battery saw this autumn because I'm frightened of my chainsaw. It just makes too much noise and makes me nervous. So I'm going to have a battery saw that I would find it more useful. I'm going to prune these things and I'm going to cut them into stakes and posts because you need an awful lot of timber on an allotment. And I'm lucky enough to have access to some hazels and ash and some other trees, some oaks as well. I keep coppiced and pruned and uh, gather those. So I'm going to get everything ready. And then in the evening, as I check my slow gin is maturing properly, I'm going to 
do my seed order. Already the first seeds are coming in. Unlike previous years, I don't think there's going to be a seed shortage this year. Um, supplies seem to be ample. Mm -hmm. And as usual, I spend far too much money on seeds. But, you know, it's for the RHS members' sake so that I can, so that I can help them more. There you go. That's what to tell yourself, Guy. I like it. I like it. It is. I'm sure it is, genuinely. But yes, it's a good way to justify it. <laughs> We need to think about keeping our plants cosy in these winter months. I'm joined now by Principal Advisor James Lawrence, who's bursting with ways to protect our precious specimens. Hello, James. Hello, Verity. First of all, with a bit of chill in the air, why should we protect our plants from the cold? OK, well, some plants are more tender than others, and if we don't give them some kind of protection, they may suffer at a later stage in their growth. So. Often these are plants that may not come from our native environment, so they're things we're used to growing, but they come from different climates. And if they get a frost, um, some of which you know, repeat frosts, that can stunt their growth or it can affect their flowering or their ability to perform as well as they, as they can. And in the severe cases, it may be fatal to some plants. OK, so it's definitely in our best interest to look at protecting them, isn't it? It is, and I think one thing I would say is it's important to kind of realise which plants need that protection and which don't. So there are plants that have a hardiness rating that the RHS give them, and it's always worth having a look at that, because if you're not sure, you can find that information on our website. And basically anything that's really H3 or below is really classified as semi-tender or tender, and will need some kind of protection. And there's various ways you might think about doing that. OK, so looking at that hardiness rating is the best way to, uh, to sort of realise and gauge which ones will need protection. Yes, and it's also worth bearing in mind individual kind of microclimates in gardens as well. So, so you may have something, for example, which is rated officially as a sort of H3 or even a H4, which should be hardy. But in certain locations, if you're very exposed or if it's a young plant, it's likely to need a little bit more protection than if it was a bit more mature. And within a garden itself, you will have areas that will naturally not get as cold. So even in a relatively small garden, there will be areas often close to the house, and especially if they're south-facing and they catch the sun and the wall has, has warmed up and then emits some of that heat back out at night, they're slightly warmer and they can sometimes be just enough to help those plants that are just slightly tender. And what sort of techniques should we be using to protect our plants? So if you've got plants in containers, for example, you may be able to move them. So we were just talking about areas that might be more sheltered, so you could move them closer to the house where they benefit from that shelter and that warmth. Generally, they will also get less rainfall if they're closer to a wall or closer to a house. And that can be quite important as well, because for a lot of plants, it's the combination of wetness and cold over winter that can be the problem. So being close to a house wall acts as a slight rain shadow. So they stay a bit drier and a bit warmer. And if they're in pots as well, you can congregate the pots together. If they're clustered, they are more likely to kind of help protect each other a little bit. And if they're not too big, perhaps raise them off the ground slightly onto pot feet, or if you haven't got pot feet, just some bricks or tiles. That allows moisture to drain through the pots well, but it also acts as another insulation layer with the air underneath the pot, so it's not in contact with the cold, hard surface. That's really interesting, and it certainly makes sense. I would not want to be cold and wet all through the winter. Exactly. So just uh, think of yourself as a plant, I guess, and think what you'd like. As we say, it's quite chilly today, but there is still some sun around. So when, when should we start about 
thinking to protect our plants? Yes, yeah, so it depends where you are in the country, but often we, we kind of look around middle of November, start being aware. I wouldn't do things too early because it's quite good for plants to get used to the slight changes in temperature. It can help harden them off a little bit. But by mid-November, we are kind of looking at making sure that those, especially those tender plants, are either moved to a more sheltered location or moved into an unheated greenhouse or conservatory if that's appropriate for the plant. And then you can start thinking about other forms of protection, like the traditional uh, forms of wrapping larger plants with fleece or some other form of protection. Now, it's very interesting you've, uh, you've mentioned that. It's as if you knew my next question, which is, are there any more sustainable options beyond horticultural fleece? Yes, so it depends what plants you're looking to protect, I would say. If, if, if they're larger plants and you can't move them, so firstly, if you can move something and you don't need to use fleece, that's the first option I would go for. If you really do need to uh, wrap or protect in some way and you don't want to use fleece, then you could perhaps think of using a, a wire cage that's around the plant. You leave a gap between the plant's stem and the chicken wire which can be held in place with stakes or sturdy canes and then you can lag between the plant and the wire with some straw or hay and that basically acts like an insulation layer. So this can be quite a useful method for things like bananas or, or maybe some tree ferns that, that are in place and they've got too large to move but you still need to give them that little extra bit of protection. The other thing you could consider is mulching around the base of certain plants. So as long as you don't pile the mulch up against the stems too much, which can cause rotting of the stems or the crowns, it can help keep the roots just that little bit warmer by having an organic mulch on the surface. Okay, excellent. Thanks, James. And final question, as an advisor, what else are you getting asked about at the moment? Yes, so other, other than the um, sort of general how to protect plants from cold, we're still getting asked about moving plants. So if someone has a, a shrub or a perennial that's in the wrong place, or if they want to perhaps divide a perennial and move it, they're asking us if they can still do that. And I think that's partly because in a lot of areas it hasn't been so cold yet, so there's still the ability to be able to do that. And I would say certainly for a lot of the herbaceous plants and certainly for deciduous shrubs that are going into a dormant period, moving them now is still fine. I would only kind of be a little bit wary if the ground was frozen or, for example, if we'd had heavy rainfall because walking over very wet soil, particularly if it's a heavier soil, can cause some compaction and things like that. But moving plants this time of year is still fine. We're also getting asked a lot if people should cut back herbaceous perennials mm -hmm. to keep them tidy or whether they should leave them and obviously there is a certain element of how you want your garden to look but from a wildlife point of view we we always explain to people that leaving the flower heads on and particularly perennials that have hollow stems or clustered flower heads that can act like a, an environment for lots of insects to overwinter and actually visually it can be quite appealing as well it's very structural and it looks amazing when you get frosts on them as well. So there's all that to think about. So leave them on if you can, and then tidy them up in spring before new growth comes. Lovely. It's getting that balance, isn't it? And I think the key at this time of year is watching the weather, isn't it? Like you say, you've got to do your jobs when the weather's in your favour, haven't you? Exactly. Well, thank you, James. That's all really interesting. You're welcome. I think it's time to warm up. And what better way than by sipping on a delicious homemade winter drink? 
Over the next few episodes, we'll be hearing from some inspiring chefs and gardeners about how to grow and make some of our favourite beverages. From garden to glass, we've got you covered. Let's kick off with a king of warming winter tipples, slow gin. Over to food grower and writer, Mark Diacono. Slow gin's a brilliant thing. I actually think it sort of demonstrates the ingenuity of the human mind because I would recommend try a slow. If you're out there picking, try one. There are few things more unpleasant that are actually food to eat than a slow. As soon as you put it in your mouth, it extracts every ounce of water in your body. It just dries your mouth out. It's so unpleasant. And yet somebody dedicated has found a way of turning them into something extraordinary. It's a classic hedgerow plant, spiky. You're going out there, and in a day like today, it's the back end of November. It's sunny as hell, but the wind is really biting. You'd be going out in this kind of weather, you know, where it's chilly, doing battle with a lot of black thorns. So you, you want to get your flavour out of that bush as quickly as you can, with as few injuries as you can. So you start to notice where all the plump ones are. If you don't have any around you, then it's really worth growing a plant or two. You don't need a whole lot of it. You just need a, enough, I would say, to fill a uh, half fill, a one litre jar. Because one bottle of slow gin will see you very nicely over winter, just for a little nip here and there. But it is very, very easy to grow. You start with bare root plants over winter. It grows perfectly merrily. It needs no assistance from you. And that's why it's thrived so well in this country as a hedgerow plant. Get yourself a big jar, get a lot of slows in there. Maybe a tenth of it should be sugar, caster sugar for easy dilution. And then get some gin in there, give it a good shake, agitate in a lid on the jar, invert it every whenever you remember as you go past. Daily is good. Slowly what happens is the flavour and the colour leach out of the slows and they get into the gin and you'll end up with this deeply coloured kind of purpley drink that is absolutely extraordinary you can have it sweeter if you're going to dilute it maybe with tonic or something quite dry i would be quite inclined to up it a bit um, but you can always improve on that later on i don't tend to really mess around with it i tried a few flavors i mean i've added bay to it before which is really good and sometimes i make if i make two batches in a year i'll add bay to to one lot. the infusion itself well people say and they're quite right you know the flavor is probably at its best maybe a year later. It's quite difficult sitting on your hands for a year. So what I did first off was make two batches. One was because I'm an age of which I know myself well enough to know that I'm not going to sit on my hands for a year. So one lot I gave to my wife and said, just put that somewhere. And even if I get down on bended knee and beg you to tell me where it is, don't. And this is, you know, there was another batch and that was going to do me for that winter. But I kind of left it until I left it for three months, which was quite you know, that was a struggle. I mean, there's lots of different things that people say with that make the best slow gin. Traditionally, people wait until after the frost because the cold starts to break down the cell structure in the slows. And that's great because the flavour and the colour come out quicker. Other people shortcut that either by jabbing the berries with a pin or putting them in the, in the freezer first. And it, that has the same effect as a really strong frost. But I would say just doing it anyway is, is grand. But yes, if it's after a frost, you'll probably find the process takes a little less time. I'm often asked, maybe I've just got a slow gin kind of a face. What do you do with the slows afterwards? The only thing, I've seen lots of recipes for stuff and 
None of them are really to my taste, apart from a thing called slider, which is where you put the slows that have infused in, in the gin into um, cider. And they do a second infusion. But I would counsel you not really to be drinking that unless you didn't want to move from where you were sat for some considerable time, because it's, it's fairly strong. Well, that takes us to the end of this week's show thanks for listening feel free to review and leave a comment wherever you listen we always love to hear from you if you'd like more information on anything we've covered today kale protecting our plants from the cold or making slow gin just head to rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast until next time it's goodbye from me verity battle i'm off to put some more mulch over the dahlias to keep them well protected from the cold I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.